economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gorney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gorney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gorney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, graduate assistant elect, Lawson Medlin. All right, so we thought it'd be good to kind of um, take a step back and look at some issues surrounding what economists call public choice. And it's really uh, discussing the political markets with maybe private markets. And uh, there's, it's a very rich area. Uh, there's a famous Nobel laureate, uh, Jim Buchanan, who really headed up a lot. And uh, he happened to be at the school where Peter came from. So we'll call Peter some sort of sub-expert, um, maybe not Nobel worthy yet, but uh, we have high hopes. Uh, and so, the, I, the general gist, if I just give a thumbnail, is that, you know, when we hire these people in the government, um, they don't become selfless angels that somehow do good without the constraints that we normally have in markets. And what I mean, market constraints is profit and loss. So you do an activity and it, it loses money, you stop doing that activity and you change to something else. And government doesn't have those same types of constraints. So that's one area that I think uh, public choice has addressed that we have um, self-interested people who get elected and they can't get away from their self-interest as they try to do serve the public good. Um, Peter, you want to take it from there? Yeah. So uh, the first thing that kind of helps us understand public choice is to recognize that as a field, it's kind of a reaction. Let's start with that. And so in the early 1900s to around the 1950s, uh, there was a field called public finance and economics. And here's like a very short example that summarizes public finance. One theory that was out there was that, and a theory that's true in economics, I, I believe, uh, but one theory that's out there is the idea of uh, diminishing marginal utility. And what some scholars did is they applied this idea of diminishing marginal utility to money. And what they said is, well, the more money you have, the less an additional unit of money is worth to you. If that's the case, and we know sort of that rate at which, you know, the utility is going away or the happiness you get from an additional dollar is going away. If a poor person, you know, values a dollar at five times what a rich person does. And if we know that for a fact, what we could do is we could de we could design a tax system that would improve the total utility or happiness or welfare of everyone in this society. And that looks like a progressive tax. You tax the rich and you give that money to the poor. And if you do that, you can sort of, you know, create this optimal tax situation. Uh, so public finance had a lot of insights, but that's one example of an insight. So what public finance did is say, let's look at this big social utility function that our society has and then let's figure out what policies could make that social utility function achieve some higher number. That's what public finance was. Yeah, and just let me add that with the social utility functions, I'll never forget my major professor. So this is public, uh, public choice, public finance, public economics was my major. And uh, he said, okay, 
So we all know that we really can't compare utility functions among across individuals, and it really can't be measured that way into a social uh, utility function, but let's assume that you can. And then away we went and spent the whole course uh, using mathematical functions that represented social utility. So yeah. I always thought that was kind of funny. We just assume it away and let, let's assume we can. So. Yeah. Now, there, I, there are a few economists early on in the 50s who started to kind of uh, implicitly in their work recognize that this was flawed. And so uh, we've got like Anthony Downs or Duncan Black. These are some economists, uh, even the, as early as Vixel, really, uh, which would have been in the 1800s. There are some economists who kind of recognize that this program didn't exactly work. But nobody ex explicitly explains why until uh, James Buchanan, who's widely considered to be like one of the founding fathers of, of public choice theory. And Buchanan's insight was this, is that in those public finance models, we treat government like a black box. It's just this thing that exists and it spits out corrections to this social welfare function that we also presume exists. And it doesn't really have any desire other than to maximize social utility. But Buchanan points out this is a really weird assumption for economists to make because we don't make this assumption about any other organization in society. And so, for example, uh, you know, when we analyze companies and we say that a company has the ability to maybe pollute without bearing the cost of the pollution, we say that companies are going to over pollute. They're going to generate a negative externality. Why do we say that? Because the owner of the company is maximizing their own profit. And there's no price or cost to polluting, so therefore do it. Right, exactly. So when a firm's in place, we recognize that, oh, the individuals are acting in their own self-interest. So what James Buchanan said is politics is much the same. Politicians aren't just, you know, necessarily interested in the social welfare function, even if they could know what that is, which it, you know, assumes a lot by itself. Uh, but they have their own self-interest and governments aren't, you know, black boxes. They're composed of individuals. And those individuals, just like private individuals, are willing to make exchanges, uh, some legal, some not, in order to further their own interests. And there's no reason to believe that their own interests will correspond with the interest of the people who elect them. It's not obvious why those two things should be connected any more than it is that a business owner will just choose not to pollute because they care about, you know, the people around them or something like that. Yeah, and it's not like they're doing uh, some sort of monetary exchange. So they like golf. Uh, they like steak and lobster dinners. They like to be pampered and treated right. with respect. And so uh, the power aspect starts to play in, a, in a distorted ways compared to what, let's say, two profit maximizing companies, how they might engage with each other. It's it's different with the government power. Yeah, that, you're exactly right. So the exchange looks like it's different in different situations. But uh, one key thing to realize now a lot of times people will say public choice is bad because it assumes badly of people, like it's a bad tool of analysis because we assume people are greedy, but that's not actually what's going on. Public choice is symmetric with its assumptions. And so old public finance theory said people self-interested, governments altruistic. That's what public finance theory did. But public choice theory says no, people are self-interested and people in government are also self-interested. And so the, the assumptions about the people in the, in the different institutions are the same, rather than arbitrarily deciding these people have good intentions, altruistic intentions, and these people have bad intentions. So actually, public choice, as a theory, has less value judgments in it than public finance. Uh, it, it requires you to make less assumptions about certain people being bad, certain people being good. Um, and economists like to kind of characterize almost like a marketplace 
where in the political markets, the households and businesses are paying with paying their politicians with votes and campaign contributions. And in response, the supply of policy and regulations and other changes comes from these um, uh, two sources, elected officials and then bureaucrats. So there's an important distinction there. So we've got bureaucrats who are employees of the government, and then you have the elected officials that we're all familiar with. And so they have slightly different motivations as well. Uh, they could change policy, and then the bureaucrats get to uh, mold what that, all the details of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And so sometimes they have perverse incentives to mold it a certain way after Congress uh, passes, uh, you know, forgive student loans, $10,000. And, and then that's what's given to the bureaucrats who then have to mold in a bunch of details uh, where there could be favoritism or other things played into how it gets molded. Yeah, absolutely. So can you give me an example of institutional behavior that is uh, like a concrete example and explain how public choice theory is better at, at um, explaining why this happens or um, why this institutional behavior would flummox somebody who believed in traditional um, public finance? Uh, yeah, we could probably come to an example. And before I, I get to the example, I, I want to, you know, step one step forward to from what we've talked about so far is a listener at home might say, well, I'm confused because the reason that we should expect politicians to behave differently is we elect them, right? And so a critique could be, no, politicians care about our interests because they're afraid of getting voted out of office. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, that mechanism actually does occur in markets and actually is maybe even a little better in markets. It's a lot easier to vote with your dollars than it is with, uh, you know, a yearly ballot or whatever. Uh, but we also have this, uh, you know, possibility of uh, what what public choice economists point out as uh, rational ignorance. That is uh, voters who have to pay a little bit of the cost of a specific policy. Um, those voters might not have a big incentive to learn about it. On the other hand, uh, special interest groups who receive a lot of benefit from particular policies, uh, they have a lot of incentive to learn about things and lobby about things. This is the the logic of special interest is that there's concentrated benefits. And so there's big incentives to learn about benefits, but dispersed costs. And so if the costs are $1 per person, uh, then this isn't a big deal. A good example of this, Justin, one thing that might be perplexing is for example, the classic is sugar subsidies uh, and, and tariffs and quotas in the United States. So the current policy, and, and I'm going to forget the particular num- numbers, but the current policy that bans a, a certain amount of sugar importation into the country, that policy, you can actually trace the benefits to it. And you can trace the cost of the policy. And so it's something like the American consumer pays, I don't remember us, you might know, two or three dollars more for like a pound of sugar uh, than they would if not for the the quotas on importation of sugar into the country. No, I have to admit I didn't even know it was that high. If yeah. it is, it may, yeah, maybe it's just one dollar. But yeah. but let's that's just pretty significant. Yeah, though, it, it, it is. It's pretty significant. Cotton, I know, is another one. And so you think of like one dollar per person per year, or some or maybe it's per year. Maybe that's it. Actually, it's three dollars per year. That that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, three dollars <laughs> per year more. Well, let, let's imagine that's what it is. It's somewhere in the range of one to three. And so you can think, well, that's a very small amount per person. It probably is not worth your time to try to get that policy reversed if it only costs you $3 per year. But recognize 300 million people, $3, that's actually a billion dollars for the country a year, approximately. 
the benefits to American, uh, this basically goes to corn growers because they produce corn syrup as a, a substitute uh, for cane sugar. That's why we have Coke with uh, corn syrup and other countries have Coke with sugar. The benefit to farmers is actually something like, if you add it all up, all the farmers benefit, something like one fifth of that cost. And so our farmers are getting a benefit somewhere in the realm of like 200 million. And the cost to American taxpayers is 100 billion or 1 billion. And this is per year. And so you, this is a very weird policy. And here's why it's weird. Instead of taking, you know, $1 billion from American taxpayers and providing a $200 million benefit, we could literally just tax Americans $1 each, give it to those same farmers and have an extra $800 million left over to do whatever we want. And so your question might be, well, why on earth would we support a policy where, you know, we're creating these benefits, which are way dwarfed by the costs? Why not just have this little tax policy uh, or, you know, some sort of more efficient policy? And the answer is basically the special interest logic is that there's politicians in particular states who are very heavily supported by uh, people in the corn industry, for example, who produce corn syrup or corn farmers, uh, agricultural states like Iowa, this is a really big deal. And when bills come across the desk of these legislators, uh, they have a really big incentive to make sure that corn farmers are always supported. supported. And so when we will talk about opening up trade to cane, grow cane sugar growers in Brazil, uh, these farmers will always oppose it because it will hurt their bottom line. Yeah. And so the danger is widespread costs and concentrated benefits. That's right. Is what Peter just kind of explained that if we're, it's all costing us a buck, who cares? But if that 300 and, you know, cost per person in the United States, 330 million people, that's 330 million bucks. If those benefits all accrue to five sugar growers or whatever, it's multiple millions of concentrated benefits, which gives them a lot of incentive to uh, lobby their politicians to keep those policies in place. Meanwhile, the average Joe says, who cares? It's a buck. Right. And so it's it's not in any individual's incentive with that's costing a buck to protest it or care much about it. Yeah. That's the rational ignorance part. Yeah. So it was a long-winded example, Justin, but did it get to your question? Yeah. And I, I really think one of the really important things there is that wealth is being destroyed in that. Yes. Right? Um, yeah. Not just that it's uh, going to a concentrated people, uh, concentrated yes. group of people. Yeah, right? good point. Yeah. Anytime the incremental costs are higher than the incremental benefits of a, of a policy move, wealth is being destroyed. Yeah. I mean, it's as simple as that. that, that and that's what our marginal analysis in econ class is all about, is trying yeah. to find wealth gaining moves um, and getting rid of a policy like that is a wealth gaining move. Yes. It's so it's a quota, like we said. So the people who grow the sugar who still sell it to Americans just at a limited rate, those people are worse off because they'd like to sell more. The consumers are worse off because now the sugar is more expensive because there's less of it and they have to buy a more expensive, like chemically created corn sugar. Uh, the only people who benefit are these farmers of the corn and people involved in the corn syrup industry, uh, but their benefit is actually less than the cost imposed to everybody else. So yeah, wealth destroying. There's less wealth in society because of it. And then uh, I can't help but think about the unintended consequences of uh, eating corn syrup for the last 40 years. Uh, yeah, no that kidding. They've talked about health problems and uh, diabetes and whatever else uh, that comes around from that, as opposed to some more pure forms of uh, sugar. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And uh, when we come back, I, I wanted to think about like maybe the EPA, Environmental Protection and the National Park Service. There's some of these government agencies and think about the 
the budgets that they faith, uh, face and what, what their incentives are for their particular departments. And then uh, we'll try to sneak a little faith component into this as well here. So we'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute is offering free economics classes to homeschool students in the Ottawa area. Uh, in these classes, we'll cover things like scarcity, supply and demand, and some common economic fallacies. We're running through our first course right now, the first section with students, and they're really enjoying it. If you're interested in having a class for yourself or one of your children, uh, please contact Peter, Justin, or us today. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for philosophy, politics, and economics. Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school student programs like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and then participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we will have an integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of $200. If you know some students interested in programs like these, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit the Gortney page on the Ottawa website. Okay, and we're back and um, wanted to bring in a little faith component. I mean, there's a number of things. Uh, we've got human behavior and, and maybe we can think about how that relates to religion or incentives. Justin, what were you thinking on in this faith area as far as public choice type issues? Well, I thought maybe this lens of public choice might explain something we see with poverty reduction programs. It seems like, um, you know, ever since LBJ declared war on poverty, um, it doesn't seem like that's a war that uh, is being uh, won by the standards of the poverty reduction programs themselves. So maybe um, does public choice theory tell us why these poverty reduction programs don't seem to work very well when they're run by um, governments. And I wanted to maybe contrast that with, um, I know that for instance, like the Mormon church has a classic um, um, poverty reduction program that, that is very, very successful. I think actually Murray Rothbard wrote about it at one point, um, but it seems like uh, private churches as a whole do a very good job um, taking care of their members with respect to the poverty pro uh, problem. So um, does public choice explain why these two institutions succeed and fail um, when they do? Well, international aid was the first thing that came to mind for me that as we start to have our hearts in the place of helping, then the actual operations kick in and individuals get put into places. And I think that's where the public choice speaks to it is that once you're in the time and place of being put into help, 
um, you still have other things in your life going on. And so that can change the incentives uh, for helping yourself, balancing helping yourself versus helping others as you engage in that activity. Um, so I think for the government, the Mormon church, I can speak for uh, multiple times as a landlord for the last uh, 25, 30 years. Somebody's down on their luck, can't pay their rent. There's a church from the Latter-day Saints, or a check rather, from the Latter-day Saints. They always cover their people. So if you are a budding landlord out there, always rent to Mormons if you can. Um, I have some right now, in fact, and the same thing happened. He lost his job and I got a check for three months in a row for the full rent. And, and so they really self-insure in a sense with their congregation. Now, not to get sidetracked too much, they're, they're pretty uh, adamant about 10% tithing for uh, to the church. But my old boss mentor uh, said that the Mormon church has uh, more money than God. <laughs> well, uh, so so I, I don't know too much about the Mormons, but I, I do, uh, you know, think about this from the public choice angle. And I think kind of similar to what Russ said, uh, we talked about how a lot of uh, programs have to be administrated through bureaucracies. And so one of the nice things about markets is we kind of know what people are out to get in markets, they're out to get profits. And so we can sort of filter our understanding of what people are doing through that lens of, oh, this is how they're going to try to get a profit. Politics as exchange, it's a little bit less clear, but here's something that we can say. Bureaucracies that are very successful at accomplishing a particular goal don't last very long. Uh, if poverty reduction is the goal of your, you know, Department of Poverty Reduction, uh, and you have this war on poverty, and you succeed within two years, uh, you're you're done with your job in the government. And this is true of bureaucrats in general. The the better you are at actually accomplishing your goal, the less time your departments are going to exist. And so, even if this isn't like a conscious mentality, we should expect some sort of like evolutionary trend over time that the departments that are the have the most you know standing that that are kind of the longest there and you know get the most funding are those departments that fail consistently to do their job in fact you might even expect sometimes they make things worse <laughs> because if you make things worse then suddenly you have a uh, more reason to fight poverty if poverty is worse then there's more uh reason to have anti-poverty campaigns right and as long as voters don't connect these dots uh then this cycle can continue and so that, that's kind of what I would say is a, a church might be legitimately interested in uh, helping fix poverty, whereas a politician who just wants to keep their job, this is the, the, what's going to result, is this kind of perpetual cycle of uh, creating new problems and discovering new problems, searching for monsters to destroy and everything. And if, if, if the church spends doesn't have to spend that dollar on alleviating poverty, they get to spend that dollar on something else. Right. Right. Uh, but it's not the case that the bureaucrat um, gets to spend uh, that dollar somewhere else because, mm -hmm. um, it, as Peter said, they just their job doesn't exist anymore. And and uh, they might face a use it or lose it type of situation with their budget, which creates inefficient spending. And um, I think the voluntary nature of of churches and people involved, not even necessarily churches, but in general, just nonprofit organizations. Uh, is an important factor. Um, we, if we uh, have create a government agency to tackle that problem, uh, inevitably you're hiring people. And let's face it, their heart's probably not in the same spot as the church member who's volunteering to do it, as opposed to, I need a job, 
oh, I've heard that government jobs are good, they're safe, you never get fired. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it's more about getting the job and keeping the job than, and, and maybe secondarily, oh, I'm glad I'm helping people along the way too. Uh, but it, I think the balance is a little different yeah. with um, voluntary uh, nonprofit charities and churches as they approach and tackle problems. Yeah, I think that's true. So that that's kind of like our consistent issue with bureaucracies. There's this fear of, uh, and this was William Niskanen, uh, whose name has been terribly tarnished by the center in his name, uh, the Niskanen Center. Uh, I, I guess shots fired for that, but uh, he he had a great insight that bureaucrats will tend to overproduce their goods because if they overproduce their goods, they're going to have larger budgets, right? And so if you can convince politicians that your bureau is the one that needs to budget, uh, and you can you know really invest in sort of creating new services for yourself to provide, you have more salaries, more workers, a bigger bureau. Bigger bureaus have more problems to deal with. And so uh, creating these problems uh, or seeking them out is a good way to, to you know, satisfy having a larger budget, but maybe it's not the best way to help people. When there's a problem, the knee-jerk reaction is we need more money. Right. We need another person. We need another this. And so there's less scrutiny on the existing process that's in place and more about money will solve the problem. Yeah. And, and so like in so many other areas of life, money does not always solve the problem. Uh, but it's especially so with the um, in the political sphere. And, and I guess education comes to mind on how much you're spending per pupil and education scores are down. And so the answer is we need more money because we need more classrooms. We need more teachers. Um, but uh, often some of the research uh, shows that the quality of education or how you're approaching it could be changed because we have other states doing it for 2,000 less per pupil and their scores are higher than what other, some other states doing with more money. Right. So I think there's really good evidence that shows that that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, but we, by assumption in this government sphere, think, oh, there's good people and good process in place. And so all it takes is a little more money to get the better result. And that's usually not the case. So it seems like we're also talking about problems that can arise just in very large bureaucracies. Um, and I think a report about Twitter came out and the, recently and it showed that um, a bunch of bad things were happening. Like people were inserting code that, um, uh, on, uh, that they weren't authorized to. Um, and it turned it, um, something like this can also I think you can see happen at like big places like Google um, where people just get in charge. Like this team owns the, uh, the this button, right? And so sure. um, <laughs> um, why is it so much bigger of a problem um, when this happens in the government, um, when it seems like uh, large bureaucracies can have these problems too. Yeah, I, th I think actually you can think of this as more of a spectrum than a, than a binary. And here's what I mean by that. I do think the key aspect is access to profit and loss calculation. And so when you have profit and loss calculation, you know whether or not the thing that you did improved your consumers' lives relative to the cost that you took on. That's a certain fact when you increase profits. And so when businesses use this, they're better off. Now, these really big businesses, like you mentioned, Justin, start to have problems because in order to solve things within the business, they need to form bureaucracies. 
And the larger the business becomes, the harder it is to figure out what aspects of the business were the things that generated profits versus generated losses. You have access to that information still, but you have sort of a fuzzier access to it than you did before. This is why all great economic contributions dovetail together. I believe Murray Rothbard, uh, an Austrian economist, had this very good point that the reason that our economy can't turn into one big firm, this was a fear that socialists were putting out at the mm -hmm. time of Rothbard saying, well, what happens when one company rules over everything and they beat everyone? Rothbard says that can never happen. And the reason it can never happen is once you become that large, it becomes impossible for you to figure out rightly what things are increasing your profits or decreasing your profits. So naturally, there's some maximum size to businesses and the bureaucracy. But as we approach that maximum size, you're going to see them resemble government more. By the way, what is government but the one big firm that no one is allowed to compete with? Multi-product firm that <laughs> is complex. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so if anything, the, the fact that you see this in places like Twitter uh, seems to confirm the theory uh, more than anything yeah. else. And that's part of what public choice brings to the table is thinking more like the government being a firm or in yep. terms of its organizational design or behavior. Yep. And then once you start to put that lens on, uh, you start to see where maybe some of those problems come about. Yeah, and kind of jumping off that point. So we've talked a lot about bureaucracies and somewhat about elected officials, but I wanted to get into the legislature a little bit too. Uh, Public Choice has interesting things to say about the legislative branch. There's this uh, school of thought in Public Choice that Barry Weingast has sort of built up called uh, the uh industrial organization of congress literature and so what Weingast points out is this and it's, it's something we've uh, known for a while he, he points out that well like any firm if if gov government's a firm it has to have a way in which it's organized just like businesses have managers and uh workers and, and things like that and so Weingast says actually if you look at congress congress has something kind of similar uh if you know how congressional committees work this is basically how it works is that when you run for office, uh, you get a bunch of donations. And after your campaign ends, all that leftover money, uh, there's things that you can choose to do with it. One thing you can do with it is purchase seats on different legislative committees. And so, for example, the Congressional Committee on Agriculture, uh, if they have an open seat, uh, how it works is first off, seniority has a little bit of weight behind it, but also you can literally buy it with the donations you've received. And so this creates a really interesting incentive where politicians who have the most financial interest to be on committees are willing to pay the most to be on those committees because, for example, the Committee on Agriculture, it develops the laws and the bills that have to do with the agriculture. So it's kind of unsurprising that, you know, congressional representatives from Iowa are always on the agriculture uh, committee uh, because they pur purchase these seats. And so this creates a way by which, you know, these disparate regions, uh, politicians can sort of rent seek for them. Uh, you know, if you've got big special interest in of agriculture in Iowa rather than New York City, uh, you know, how do you get how do you convince, you know, the Iowans or the, the farmers rather, not the Iowans, but the farmers that the New York City guy is not going to lead up the agriculture thing and shut it down and get rid of all the special interest money. Uh, you make them purchase the seats, and it turns out uh, the Iowa representatives are willing to pay. And so this is sort of like a, a quasi-market thing that's mm -hmm. been created inside of Congress. And in general, that would be normally good if it was competitive, but it's not. Right. So, I mean, just a you know, market, there's, there's kind of this quasi-market, and usually, yay, we're like, yay, market. 
but the most important ingredient to any market is competition and that's what's lacking in in those settings yep and leads to leads to problems so uh yeah running one place i i had to throw in a little econ jargon with uh economies of scale that um, people usually get this idea that bigger is better and that costs go down, but that does have its limits. And so the bureaucratic crunch is the diseconomies of scale where the costs actually start to go up when we create these bureaucracies and, and incentives that uh, people are wasting resources and ultimately not maximizing profits. And so this is true in business and it's true in government. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bigger problem in government, as Peter was saying, because they don't have that loss mechanism and uh, with people having widespread cost and, and concentrated benefits, then the more money thing is, is easy to get. Uh, there's an amazing graph on transfer payments um, and well, government spending in general from, from Great Depression era till today. And it is a hockey stick. And that hockey stick is a lot about what we've been discussing this whole podcast that uh, the, the structure of government with the bureaucrats looking to maximize their own individual department budgets and uh, officials uh, having incentive to get elected and then to stay in office um, has created a larger and larger government and people, uh, I think, over time, the pendulum swings. I think we, we see that, oh, my gosh, maybe the government's too big with this government shut down with COVID. And that was supposed to be two to four weeks. And now here we are two years into it. Maybe there's something to it. So I'm always optimistic that those type of events might awaken us that uh, a more limited form of government would be a better way to go. But I tend to have those hopes and dreams squashed, uh, unfortunately. So. Yeah, I mean, one reason for the fear of the squash, and we're just kind of going down the list now of, of public choice things. What, one reason why the squash seems unlikely uh, is another thing that politicians have to do in order to, uh, in economics, we would say that they're trying to extract rents. In other words, they want businesses to pay them money to, you know, donate to their reelection funds, for example, so that they can win office again. And one of the difficulties is with you know, governments changing hands back and forth, it's really hard to make credible commitments and say, hey, you know, I'm going to make sure that your company is the top company if you donate to my campaign, because it's like, well, what if that person loses? Or what if you lose the majority in the House or Senate? And so this is where the judicial branch comes in. And so there's a whole literature on public choice that says, what is the judicial branch, but something that assures credible commitments? If you can make a judicial branch uh, decision that supports, you know, particular protections on, we'll say, intellectual property of, you know, new tech stuff. That's a relatively rigid rule. Judicial precedents are very hardly ever overturned. And so there's all these mechanisms that when you start to look, you can see, like, how do we establish credible commitments? Well, with businesses, you can sue them if, if they, uh, you know, if they lie to you, if they don't deliver what they promise. You can't sue politicians when they don't uh, deliver on their promises, right? But what politicians can do is make the promises through the judicial branch, and that makes them a lot more robust. And so uh, I, I'd like to think that there's going to be awakening, but I, I think like, you know, the judicial branch, there's been plenty of, uh, you know, reinforcements added to this wall of government transfers. Well, the whole legislating from the bench, um, it seems like we've made some moves the, the direction of limiting that with the last things that have happened with the Supreme Court. Um, we've had another podcast of unwinding some of that. Is that part of what you're talking about? If we are moving a little bit that direction of, of uh, 
unwinding some of what's built up over time? This might be the reason. I, I think you're right, Russ. I think this relates. This might be, you know, there's all this flowery language about why we don't want to overturn Preston or whatever. Uh, and maybe some of it's true, but this might be the reason why philosophies that are against overturning precedents are kind of rising to the top. Uh, now, some of them only support liberal precedents, some conservative precedents. Uh, but to a certain degree, there's like this value on precedent that exceeds even party lines to a certain extent, at least on the margin. Why does that exist? Well, I think it probably exists because, you know, politicians really want that precedent to be enforced. So there's sort of a certainty about political exchanges. Uh, but some of those things toppling down, that could be uh, maybe even a good sign to a certain extent, even apart from the legislation itself, in that uh, maybe it's going to make our politicians' promises to special interest groups a little bit less uh, uh, solid, which hopefully would mean there's less of them. Well, it looks like we've solved most of the world's problems. Uh, limit government power and we will reduce poverty, uh, amongst other things. So uh, not sure how that's all going to shake out, but that seems like a pretty simple recommendation. So, well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us. And if you could just forward it along to your family and friends, that would be great. We have a Gorton Institute donate button if you'd like to continue to sponsor us. There's a reoccurring donation or a one-time event. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.